Thank you, Miss Amanda. Thank you, boys and girls, for being here today as we continue our worship together. I would like to invite everyone to join and follow along as I read today's gospel lesson. It's in the Gospel of John, the fourth gospel, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now, draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink or who have had their fill. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable to you, O God, our rock and our redeemer. And the people said, Amen. My wife Melanie always dreamed as a little girl of a formal church wedding at the church where she grew up in Columbia, South Carolina, First Baptist Church. We got engaged the spring of our senior year in college, and we set the date, June 2nd, 1990. And the planning would begin, and if you know Melanie, she's a planner. I mean, she is very organized. Counseling with our pastor took place, trips to sample caterers, that was pretty cool. Shopping for the dress, I didn't get to do that. Choosing the flowers, selecting the music, organizing the wedding party. Lots of our college friends were there, 12 groomsmen, 12 brides. So lots of logistics in this wedding. Flower girl and ring bearer, chamber orchestra at the reception, all these things to organize. And I will never forget the phone call. It was a week before we were to get married. Melanie called, and she was in tears. I couldn't make out what she was saying, 
I thought that there was a family emergency. She finally calmed down, and she was able to explain the emergency that had happened. And for a bride who was one week away from the wedding of her dreams, it was indeed an emergency. You see, the church had called her mom and had expressed the bad news that the air conditioning system in the fellowship hall where the reception was to take place had broken and that we could no longer use it for the wedding. We were devastated. What would we do? Some people might say, well, why couldn't you just have the reception in the fellowship hall and put some fans up? Have you ever been to Columbia, South Carolina during the summer when the humidity is thick as water? There's no way that, that we could have it, and they wouldn't allow it anyway. We needed our own small wedding miracle. Melanie's mom and dad, her dad is in heaven now, they called a family meeting, start praying, and she used to be on staff at the church and children's ministry years ago, so she knew people would be praying, and somebody told her that they had found that the Columbia Chamber of Commerce, which had never before allowed receptions to be on site, had just begun to uh, be a wedding venue. And Melanie's mom called, and we learned that June 2nd was open. Although it was much more costly for her dad than the church fellowship hall, they booked it, and we were able to have a beautiful reception after all. Today's gospel story centers at a wedding. The setting is the village of Cana, a few miles from Nazareth where Jesus grew up. The central event in the story is the wedding. We don't know whose wedding it was. Some scholars say it might have been a relative of Jesus' mother, Mary. She was there. Others say it was perhaps a close family friend. Nonetheless, they were invited to be part of, this, of the wedding. John in his gospel tells us that Jesus and the disciples had also been invited. And if you read a little bit earlier in John, from chapter 1 on, you'll know that there were five new disciples by this point. And so Jesus and the five made six extra guests, and they made their pilgrimage, arriving some point during the wedding festival. And sometime after Jesus arrived, the crisis emerged. The air conditioning in the fellowship hall didn't break. The dress wasn't too big. The bridegroom didn't get cold feet, but the bride was probably in tears after she learned that the wine had run out. John doesn't tell us they had a family meeting, but John does tell us that it was an emergency. They ran out of wine. The wine gave out. What an embarrassment. How humiliating. The bridegroom's family who had come from this small village and probably had saved for years to pay for all this, uh, would, would have been devastated. To run out of wine before its time at a Jewish wedding festival was an unfortunate hospitality indiscretion that would cause humiliation for the host if the problem were not quickly fixed. In short, it could have been a social disaster. 
Can you imagine the stressed out host trying to find more wine while quietly fussing at the ones who were responsible for monitoring the uh, consumption so that they didn't run out too quickly? Imagine the servants' fear as they watched festival goers whispering to one another, saying things like, do you think that they forgot to pay the caterer's bill? They've been trying to keep up with the Joneses for years, and it caught up with them. If Jesus hadn't brought himself and those five other hungry men, they probably wouldn't have run out of wine so quickly. You can hear the voices. Jesus' mother was very well aware of what happened, and she knew of her son's power. She had heard him talk, surely she did, of his wilderness experience where he was tempted by the adversary and how God had given him the power to overcome just about anything. Well, we know everything that Satan threw at him. And in an effort to spare the family from embarrassment or social disgrace, Jesus' mother comes to him for help. She makes eye contact, and then they find a quiet place to chat, mother to son. Joseph, the earthly father of Jesus, Mary's husband, likely had died some years prior, so Jesus and his mother would have had a very close bond. They have no more wine, she said. It's kind of like a statement that is assuming that Jesus would do something. It's kind of like, for me, um, we're out of milk. That means I need to go to the store and get another gallon, right? Or if somebody tells you, there are a lot of leaves in the yard, or the grass is kind of high, there's an implication that something needs to be done. Or to your teenager, your room is a mess. That translates to clean up your room or your phone is going to get taken away, right? Mary says they are out of wine. And the implication is Jesus needed to do something about it. One writer says, Since Jesus' miraculous birth, Mary has pondered in her heart the future glory of her Son. She has seen the visions, heard the angels, witnessed His remarkable development. And you remember the words in Luke where she treasured all of these things up in her heart. She knew there was something special about her Son. She knew that He would be a Savior. She knew there would be a time when He would reveal His glory. She knew this for years. She knew he had power from God. They have no more wine. Can you do something? Can you do something? There is a moment of hesitation, perhaps, after her impassioned plea. And maybe during that moment, she looks at her son's face and sees a decidedly different look on his eyes. Much different than the son she had lived with for all these years. Many thoughts would run through his mind at that point. He knew his purpose. He knew his ministry had just begun. In a few short years, Jesus would take bread and wine and say, this is my body given for you. This wine symbolizes my blood shed for you. In a few short years, he would bleed on the cross and he would bleed water when his side was pierced. But he knew that it was not time to reveal his full glory. There were more disciples to call, more teaching to do, more work to be done. 
And he knew that the wedding was not God's timing to fully reveal his Messiahship. Yet it was also an opportunity for him to reveal how he was involved in even the mundane details of human life. And so just as he would submit to his heavenly Father's will in the Garden of Gethsemane, he would submit to his earthly mother's will at the wedding at Cana. Mary's suggestive voice and body language made it clear to Jesus that help was needed. Just as bad back then as no air conditioning in the fellowship hall in 1990 on a scorching hot summer day in Columbia, South Carolina. So she made her request in the way that she knew and got out of the way and told the servants, do what he says. In other words, Mary told the disciples, not my will, but his be done. Think about that. She went to the servants and let them know who was sovereign. Jesus' thoughts turned quickly, perhaps, from the future to the immediate need at the moment. Just like he would have compassion on the multitudes who were hungry and had been following him and needed to have something to eat, and he gave food from bread and fish. He had compassion on this group of people at the wedding festival, people so poor and heavily burdened, people who worked hard and desired simply to provide a wonderful wedding festival for their children. And Jesus' mind goes to the bride and groom. The embarrassment would not be a way to start their marriage, to go on their honeymoon, let alone to face their community. This young couple needed help. And Jesus' heart, I believe, went out to them in compassion. Without a word from His lips and without a touch of His hand, Jesus simply willed the water to become wine. And in that sacred moment, even the water obeyed. You remember the text where Jesus and where the disciples were in a storm and Jesus calmed the wind and the waves. And it was said, even the wind obeys Him. In this case, even the water obeyed His command. The water became wine. And Jesus simply instructed the servants to fill the six stone containers that John tells us about. I like looking at what's beneath the surface in the text. Have you thought about the number six? There's a lot to it. Jesus plus those five disciples John mentions totaled six. There were six days of creation in Genesis chapter 1. And six is just one number shy of the number seven, which symbolizes perfection, completion, wholeness in the Bible. Perhaps the six water jars remind us that while Jesus revealed His glory to some in this story, that He limited it and there was much more yet to come. It wasn't fulfilled yet. For He said in verse 4, My time has not yet come, or My hour has not yet come. Water jars in the first century like this were made of both clay and stone. The stone ones were much easier to use for ceremonial washing because they didn't have to be cleaned like the clay ones did. They were easier to keep clean. 
used to wash the feet of guests as they would have come to the wedding festival, and also used to wash the hands of the guests as they ate, and also uh, between courses of the meal. The servants would have been responsible for changing out the water over the course of the week-long wedding festival, and for whatever reason, John doesn't tell us, but these six water jars were empty. And Jesus said, fill them to the brim. Fill them to the very top. If you're a coffee drinker, do you remember that old commercial? Fill it to the rim with brim. Fill it to the rim so that you can see the lip of the water just hovering above the top of the container. And then Jesus said, now draw some water out and take it to the master of the banquet. This would have been the table master, the one responsible for the entire supply of the wine. And the servants did just what Jesus said, and they took the water container after they had dipped it out of the stone uh, jar and took it to the table master. He didn't realize where it had come from, but it was, as he sipped it, the finest of wines. He didn't realize where it had come from, but the servants, they knew. They didn't know how, but they just knew that Jesus told them to fill the jars with water and to dip water out and take the water to the table master, and when he tasted it, it had turned to wine. Jesus had willed the water to become wine. The table master called the bridegroom and said, in the message version of the Bible by Eugene Peterson, everybody I know begins with their finest wines and after the guests have had their fill, brings in the cheap stuff. But you, you have saved the best till now. John writes that this was the first of Jesus' miraculous signs. There would be more to come. But this first one was to help this early band of disciples, five in number, to put their faith in him, and perhaps even his mother, and oh, by the way, those servants who had seen a glimpse of his power as well. One writer puts it like this, so characteristic that Jesus chose to reveal his glory here in this way and for this purpose, it was not revealed at the imperial palace in Rome. It was not revealed at Herod's temple in Jerusalem. It was not revealed at the colonnade Acropolis in Athens. But here in an impoverished village in Cana, nestled inside an obscure corner of Galilee, so obscure that most scholars can't pinpoint it on a Bible map and tell you exactly where Cana was. And the writer continues, And it was just like Jesus to reveal His glory with a quiet miracle, no fanfare, no spotlights, no theatrics, just the mighty hand of God working silently behind the scenes in an hour of need. And the purpose of the miracle, it was not performed to quench His own thirst. He could have done that. Nor was it to satisfy the needs of others or the demands of others. Nor was it to ease His mother's anxiety but rather simply to save a couple of newlyweds from embarrassment and to bring a little joy to a hard-working community. This epiphany season is between the big spectacle of Christmas 
and the big spectacle of Easter where there is glory all over the place in the angels and in the voices and in the tomb. And on the third day, He rose from the dead and appeared to many. Oh, there's big spectacle. There's lots of glory. But during this epiphany season, perhaps we don't have to look far to find the ways in which God works in the simple and in the mundane. For those of us who have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, there's a lot of glory to behold to behold between Bethlehem's birth and Easter's resurrection. I paraphrase St. Augustine. He points out that God turns water into wine every year. Water grows grapes which eventually ferment into wine. It is so commonplace that we have lost our amazement. He says, this miracle reminds us of the everyday miracles of life. My challenge to you and to me today is that we would pay attention to the small, everyday, simple miracles as epiphany season unfolds. And as we journey toward that wonderful day we call Easter. Jesus' miracle was simple that day at the wedding. But what does it mean to us? One way that we can understand this text and the message that it speaks is that if Jesus can change water to wine, then Jesus sure can change you and me. If Jesus can change water to wine, then Jesus can change you and me. One wife says it this way, After my husband encountered the transforming power of the resurrected Christ, Jesus changed beer into furniture. That's right. She said Jesus changed beer into furniture. She meant that the money that her husband had previously been spending on beer and other alcoholic substances was now being spent on family. Jesus can turn the sour into the sweet. Jesus can change the bitterness, our bitterness, into peace. Jesus can change anger into joy. And Jesus can change our hatred into love. His mother believed in Him. His disciples had faith in Him. And He'd want us to as well. Let us pray.